0: SAS people to the SAS Revolution show, bringing you front row seats to the SAS Revolution, courtesy of Sascribe Media. Uh, I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and uh, uh, another special guest joining us today. Um, It's uh, Michael Litt, uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, Vidyard. Uh, Welcome, Michael.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no, it's a a real pleasure. Now, uh, now, Michael, for the for the listeners and uh, and readers, uh, you know of Sascribe that may not have heard of you guys yet. So, you know, what does Vidyard do?
1: Yeah, great question. Vidyard is a video marketing platform, and so what that means at a very high level is that our our customers upload videos to us. Uh, we encode them for playback on all devices: um, iOS, Android, BlackBerry, all desktop browsers, Flash, and HTML five. And then once our users and customers embed them on their websites, on their blog and Facebook and Twitter, we track how every single person views that content second by second. So we know if someone watched the whole thing, if they rewatched a certain section, if they only made it 20% of the way through. Now that data is very powerful, as I'm sure you can imagine, with respect to producing new content, finding out what works and what doesn't. Hmm. Uh, But we also uh, feed that data into marketing automation platforms and CRM. So your marketing teams can run nurturing campaigns based on how much of video an individual watched, and your sales teams can see exactly how much content was viewed by a prospect. So when they pick up the phone and have that conversation, they already know what the uh, the individual they're talking to is interested in based on that data.
0: Okay, very cool. And is, how did you come up with the idea? Um, you know, what's the uh, the origin story of uh, of Vidyard?
1: I'll I'll try to give you the uh, the shorter version of that because it's uh, it's definitely a, a story I could talk about for a while. Um, but essentially what happened, my, uh, my co-founder Devin and I uh, were in our final year at the University of Waterloo in systems design engineering. And the Waterloo program essentially set up so that you do four months of work and four months of school all the way through. And so it gives you great perspective on what you do and don't want to do when you graduate. And the one thing we knew we both didn't want to do was work for a big company. So we started... Thinking through some, some options and businesses that we could run, I had uh, started a, a semiconductor blog that I had sold previously, uh, and uh, my brother and I had attempted to start a biodiesel refinery, so I had a little bit of, of startup experience. And uh, through that process, we identified that video production was a category that was underserved in the market. There's a lot of companies looking for animated explainer videos, and we had the skill sets required to actually build that content. So we started manufacturing these animated explainer videos, essentially animating clip art and selling those assets to Fortune 500s. And, and the general idea was to take a really complex idea and simplify it with a video. And so we started wondering you know, how our customers were going to put these videos online and we started doing some research on existing platforms. And it turns out there wasn't really anything designed to help a customer develop ROI on their video investment. So. You know, I spent $50,000 on this, this piece of content. How is it performing? How is it impacting my bottom line? So we started tooling around with our own playback engine and our own analytics platform um, that would essentially host the video, play it on the website, and then track how people viewed it. And then we could export that data to our customers and show them how much of the audience made it to the end of the video. And so we, we, we got this idea that we could actually sell the video content with a guarantee or a warranty. And we could say that if 60% of the audience doesn't make it to the end of the video, we'll reproduce it until that number is true. And that worked quite well. Um, companies liked uh, de risking the purchase decision for video. And inevitably, what happened was the analytics platform and the demand for that started to supersede the demand for video production services. And so we applied to a program called Y Combinator in Silicon Valley. Um, PG interviewed us, called what we were doing YouTube for Business. Um, advised that we shut down the content production company and focus entirely on this video marketing and video intelligence platform, and so that's really what we uh, what we focused in on and, and ended up building. And so as we've as we've progressed, the analytics have gotten more robust. Um, the integration suite has has certainly gotten broader, and we've built lots of cool peripheral technologies on top of that that core piece, um, which we built to solve our our customers' problems.
0: Okay, very very cool. So you mentioned why Combinator there and. Uh, uh, in fact, it was going to be my next question about, you know, what key lessons did you learn from what is effectively the Harvard Business School of uh, of startups. So I'm I'm assuming you probably learned many lessons, but uh, are are there any in particular, um, you you know, that uh, that really sort of you know still resonate to this day?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly a combination of both applied skill sets, um, you know, with respect to starting a business, but also. Things on the personal side and, and I'm a, I'm a huge believer that, you know, most companies fail to, to launch, fail to get off the ground because of, of distractions that the founders experience. And those distractions can be as simple as, you know, a, a friend's birthday party, weddings in the summer, you know, whatever it might be. And it might sound absurd, but when we went to Y Combinator, you know, we came from Waterloo, Ontario, and we didn't really have any roots in Silicon Valley. I had worked there on a few internships, but certainly didn't have family or or broader relationships there when we started. And so we would basically spend our entire day. Um, we would work shifts. Devin would, uh, my, my, my technical co-founder, would essentially get up at, at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, start coding at 4, go all the way through to 6 or 7 a.m. I would get up at 7 a.m. and start calling potential prospects and customers. I'd go all the way through to 10, working various time zones, go to bed. And, and we had this like 24-hour shift thing happening. And that focus of removing all distractions from your life and completely applying yourself to solving a problem is really what what YC creates. And Paul Graham's mentality was, you know, if you've got a product in market, how do you grow your user base or your revenues by 10% per week? Because Mm -hmm. those are the metrics you really need to nail at those early, early stages to get that exponential growth. And eventually that becomes, you know, 10% per month. Um, And then when you're really, really big, it becomes 10% per quarter. But, you know, it's important to focus on that extreme growth early on and nothing else really, really matters. So for us, YC provided isolation. It provided focus. It provided drive. And, you know, one of the best parts of the program is the the alumni network and the classmates you have because every Tuesday night you go to a dinner and everybody sounds like they're doing amazing things and everybody's product sounds like it's, it's fully built. They're acquiring users. You know, frankly, it makes you feel... A bit shitty about your own progress, and so you go back home and you throw yourself into it full swing. So yeah, y, YC was all about focus and, and again removing the distractions of starting a company.
0: Hmm. Yeah, Paul. Uh, I mean, Paul Graham. I think actually I, I reread it again this morning. He you know wrote uh, wrote about startups doing things that don't scale, and uh, I'm assuming yep. that you guys took that approach. And you know what were the things uh, that you did to help Vidyard grow that didn't scale in the beginning?
1: Yeah, great question. So so we built this, uh, this, this platform that we call Nostradamus. And it exists today in the company in a, in a very different version. Um, but the way Nostradamus worked is uh, it went out and crawled the Demos and the Alexa database for the top 10 million websites on the web. And then as we would crawl the actual sitemap of the website, we would look for video embeds, the number of video embeds, and what technologies were being used. And we would store that information in a database. And then we'd go and look at their YouTube channel and see how many videos they had on their YouTube channel. And we'd store that number in a database. And then we'd look at crunch base reports and, and money raised. And we'd look at finance reports. And we'd look at the size of the organization. And then we would store that information in the database. And then we would look for the three individuals that we could potentially sell our product to. And that was you know, the director of demand generation, VP marketing, CMO in the early days. And it, it's gotten much more complex since then. And we'd store that number in the database. So we had all this really cool information. And essentially what we did was we ranked companies on a scale of 1 to 10 based on their propensity to buy Vidyard based on those very simple data points um, and then looked at the revenue scale, et cetera, kind of targeted the mid-market because SMBs are tough to sell to and enterprises are tough to sell to and exported a list of 85,000 leads. And so I ranked and sorted that list and every morning I'd wake up and I would start working through that list. Um, we also did a bunch of early signups to the product um, through our beta program, and essentially when I would get somebody on the phone that was interested, I would put them on a list so that when we actually launched the technology, we had 15 people that had already indicated interest in using the tech. So we did some scalable things there, but the part that did not scale was making those calls. I was doing 100 to 150 dials a day, getting kicked in the shins a lot, you know, it's not something that the CEO of a company can do in perpetuity, but in the very, very beginning, you know, you're, you're the primary salesperson, you're the, you're the champion. And all those conversations that we had basically provided the feedback for the product direction and what you ultimately see today from the business. So, you know, big thing that didn't scale, tons of learning, and uh, yeah, definitely impossible of, uh, of that discipline.
0: Yeah, awesome. Uh, great insights there. And so how how long did it take Vidyard um, to get to product market fit?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I would argue that we're still looking for it. I okay. mean, I know Phil Phil Hernandez from Marketo, Um, You know, he recently or, or maybe was their head of product. You know, they're a hundred I think hundred and sixty million dollar business now, and they don't feel like they're they're fully quite yet at product market fit. Um, we definitely have that flywheel effect. Our product solves the need for a lot of customers, hence the explosive growth in, in, in the last little bit here, leading to the Series B. But we're always looking for new and innovative ways of engaging with our customers. And you know, I think companies can assume they're at product market fit far too soon, and that tends to slow down the pace of their innovation.
0: Okay, and um, your your role as CEO. So you talked about what you uh, you know were doing in, in in the beginning, the early days, and these two hundred dials uh, a day, and getting kicked in the shins a lot. Uh, you, you know, and putting the graft in. Um, now, how has it changed from you know, uh, I guess those days to to present day? You know, what are what are the key differences? What are you spending your time on uh, today?
1: It's a fantastic question, and, and in fact, it's something that. You know, I I don't think there's a ton of training around, and, and it's a bit of a sink or swim transition. Uh, early on, obviously, you know, I could call hundred prospects a day, uh, I could close a five hundred dollar deal, and and move the needle for the business. Um, but as you grow and as you employ people um, to take over those roles, you know, you, you can't move the needle in that way. And so the way Devin and I always kind of look at the company is it's a gigantic dam with tons of leaks. And he's good at plugging some leaks, and I'm good at plugging other leaks. And so when we decide which leaks we're good at plugging, I'll go and put my finger in one of those holes, and then I go look for someone who's much better at plugging that hole than I am. And that person, coincidentally, can also plug all the holes around that particular leak in the dam. And so I go along, and I, and I fill the leaks in a specific part of the dam, and then I manage all the people that are essentially filling the leaks in that dam, and then eventually you hire someone that manages all the people that fill the leaks in the dams. That you can go and build a bigger dam, or you can go generate more more power, or or you can do something completely different with your time. And so that's you know the way I see the transition of of the CEO role in a startup. And only now, at about 100 employees, do I think I'm I'm starting to become a bit of a true CEO. And that you know I'm looking at uh, board management, uh, governance of the board itself. Um, we we manage the company based on dashboards. I manage through. Um, five executives um, that have broader teams underneath of them. And it it, it really simplifies you know, my approach to my day, which is nice, um, but ultimately allows me to look at various projects inside of the company. And, and what I like to do is if I see an area of the business that I think could be improved, I'll jump in and if the, you know the attempt or the method or whatever is put in place is a failure, I'll assume that failure myself, learn from that, Make the change, apply the difference, and, and move on to something else and, and that 's really quite exciting and uh, it 's neat to be able to work with the organization in that way
0: okay, very good, very good and uh, I, I guess it, it wouldn't you, um, you, you know be fair to do some research on video without watching a couple of videos uh, yeah. on, on, on you and uh, um, uh, one of them it was a, a TEDx talk that you gave, uh, and it was it was about failure. Um, the closing statement I believe was you will fail to have uh, a great career unless you fail to have a great career. Um, you know, can you I- explain uh, that a little bit to, I guess, sort of people that haven't seen that talk? And of course, we'll, we'll link to the specific talk itself, but uh, I, thought, I thought that was quite interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, the, uh, I, I really appreciate that you watched that and, and hopefully it was uh, in, in some way inspirational. Um, one of my professors uh, was a gentleman named Larry Smith, um, who's highly regarded at the University of Waterloo as a, as a leading economist and just a, a great professor all around. And he gave a talk about how people will fail to have a great career. And it, it just was you know, based on the complexities of, of, of corporate life. It was based on the complexities of not identifying your skill sets and, and doubling down on those things. And you know, I'm an engineer, and I like to be a little more practical. And so you know, I remember being very inspired by that, that talk he gave and just thought about you know, what's the actual extension of that and, and you know, I feel like I've been able to have a very great very exciting career and, and ultimately what's the reason for that? What, what drove me to that point? Um, what was my, my inspirational moment and, and for me it was you know, failing and it was failing uh, to start this biodiesel company which ultimately led me to fail a term in school um, but those failures uh, essentially created new opportunities um, and based on my age and where I was at in life, I was constantly looking for these new opportunities. And so you know, I fully understood that or, or learned from those experiences and were able to apply them to you know, what I'm currently doing now at Vidyard. And so the, you know, the, the, the point I'm trying to make in that talk for you know, people at big businesses is, is you, you can't be afraid of, of failing in your career. You can't be afraid of trying a new technology that, that could essentially change the way you do business, that could improve the performance of your company. When you're starting a startup, you know, you fail all the time. There are things you do um, that will eventually be forgotten and past you go down that just don't really make sense and don't work. But you need to recognize those failures and learn from those mistakes and apply those to your career. So that's, that's really the message that, um, you know, I was trying to convey in that talk. And uh, it was to the University of Waterloo, which, you know, is my, uh, my uh, alma mater. Sort of speak, and uh, you know I just love going back there and, and, and speaking to all those innovative and inquisitive minds
0: yeah it was a it, it was a great talk, and as i say we we'll, we 'll link to that and uh, and hopefully everyone well they they should watch that um, you, you know to further uh, I, I guess on your your answer there and the, the other video. Um, it was. I think it was an anatomy uh, of a hustle. Uh, um, uh, I think it was at some startup event, and uh, the like the opening to the gambit. Um, you said that you know you believe that you're a hustler. Um, uh, but is is you know is hustle uh, does it have a, like a negative connotation? Uh, now you know is it now a dirty word?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think um hustle is misused, and um hustle has certainly Turned into you know this concept of like bugging people and and pushing people and and uh, I've met some self-proclaimed hustler hustlers in the startup world and and you know what the word hustle connotates is is a lack of a lack of tact um, you know for me hustle isn't you know about hustling somebody for money it's not the general connotations it's that aspect of the business if you're the hustler to someone's you know technical founder role. Uh, you 're building the business you 're you're, you're talking to customers you 're talking to investors you 're recruiting people and you 're making sandwiches for your developers you 're cleaning the bathrooms in the early days of your, of your company and so it 's much more than you know just going out and, and, and hustling people for money and deals and, and cycles like that um, because I think you know building a business is ultimately very strategic um, and you always need to look for you know points of leverage and conversation. Um, you need to have a product that people actually want to buy, and it, it's just it's it's much more complicated than you know just shaking somebody down so yeah i uh I, I certainly believe it it's it's become a negative thing um and you know i I do think though that there's certainly a lack of of people with strong business acumen they're able to push themselves outside their comfort zone and get deals done and and that's the element of hustle that i I really try to convey through that talk and that I really want especially Canadian entrepreneurs, to, to harness and, 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 and hopefully develop a little bit for themselves.
0: Okay. All right. No, it's, um, yeah, I think, you know, as you say, uh, I, I start to see this sort of negative connotation where maybe too many people have jumped on the, the, the hustle bandwagon, um, you know, because it, it, it seems to be, you know, the trending within the startup community, but uh, people mistaking actually, you know, what, the, uh, you know, what it means, um, but, um, but yeah, no, it's a uh, uh, really good insight there. And, uh, uh, earlier, earlier you mentioned, um, your series B round, which, uh, I, th- I think was announced in, in January of this year. Um, yep. and, um, as I understand, uh, uh video, I've raised, uh, was it was $18 million. Yep. And, you uh, it. yeah. And, um, so Bessemer Venture Partners, uh, Salesforce, uh, uh, Ventures were included in that round and, uh. Uh, Byron Dieter uh, from Bessemer Venture Partners Um, he's now on your board Um, but um, as I understand uh, you know it it maybe wasn't sort of you know smooth sailing that that actually uh, you received a a call from Byron on on your wedding day uh, no less that where he gave you the news that uh, you should look elsewhere than, than Bessemer is that right?
1: Yes, you you got it. <laughs> okay.
0: And uh so I mean how did you uh, how did you get him back uh you, you know on the table and then sort of uh leading that round or you know involved in that.
1: Yeah, it that's a it's a fantastic question. Um it's it's all hustle. I'm I'm just kidding. It's um <laughs> I think the important thing um for every entrepreneur to consider is that um, you know, you often have to, have to, to weird, use a weird analogy. You have to kiss a lot of frogs to find your prince mm. um, in everything. And, it, you know, it comes down to, to closing your first few customers. It's about volume. You need to have tons and tons and tons of conversations before you find, you know, the people that are actually willing to buy. Um, and the same story goes for investors. And so, you know, Byron Dieter um, and, and BVP, you know, first of all, to their credit, is, is an absolutely amazing fund. I've I've really enjoyed working with Byron. He's a fantastic board member. You know, he is the one that I always wanted to work with. And, um, you know, they, they, they looked at the business and, you know, the stage we were at wasn't necessarily well aligned with the type of raise we wanted to put together. And, uh, you know, they have limited resources in the fund. And uh, it just seemed like if they waited... <laughs> you know, an extra six months to a year, um, they would see the type of performance of the business that could more easily justify the investment. And, you know, the only forcing function for a deal is missing that deal. And so inevitably what happened is, um, you know, we went out and, and because we started the conversations with BVP, we started conversations with a bunch of other funds. And one of those funds, you know, decided that there was enough information there for them to make a sound decision on investment. And they ultimately wrote us a term sheet. And uh, I met with Byron outside of the uh, Moscone Center at Dreamforce. We had literally just gotten a term sheet and I communicated that to him and you know, the, the, the concept was if we took that other deal, he would, he would miss his kick at the can and, and wouldn't get a chance to invest. And so it happened you know, slightly earlier than they had expected. It was still probably four or five months by the time it closed after that wedding conversation. Um, so there was more data there, more information for the business. Um, and he was able to convince his partnership that it was a deal worth doing. And it's been a, it's been a great partnership between Vidyard and, and BVP ever since. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, well, I mean, I guess they're, uh, well, there, there's so many VC firms these days, but um, you know, I guess they're one of the, uh, the, the rockstar uh, VC firms, if if that's a fair sort of description, but you know, if you're a, a SaaS business or a cloud business, you know, certainly you'd, uh, you know, be looking at uh BVP in the, in the first instance. So, um, so it's great that uh, you got uh, the the guy that you wanted to work with uh, on on your board in the end. Uh, and I guess when he called you on your wedding day and was maybe giving you that bad news, the uh, the negotiation began at not yet, you know, but uh, but later yeah. to uh, On the the, the bad <laughs> sort of joke, Paul Graham in joke there. But yeah. um, uh, okay, and, and I think sort of on onto um, uh, well, it's just uh, a, a, a couple more questions here now. Um, you know, uh, with uh, startup founders, you know, it's quite often saying that, um, you, you know, when you start a business and you get a co-founder, you've got to look for somebody, you know, uh, crazy or as crazy as you, uh, you know, to come on board and, uh, and join you. Um, now, I mean, do you believe that you have to be crazy to start a business? And what's the craziest thing that you've done at Vidyard?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think you need to be crazy to start a business. You know, I think, you know, for, for us. We started this company at, at a stage in life where we had, you know, so much flexibility. We had essentially no expenses. We had built out fancy lifestyles yet. We could live on ramen. Um, you know, our, our early salaries were hundreds of dollars a month. I think it was like three hundred and fifty dollars per month. You know, just to buy you know the odd bit of groceries and, and maybe some beer. So you, know, you, you don't have to be crazy, but you you have to be in the right stage of life and. You, know, you have to have the skills required to actually build the technology. And I see a lot of business people um, who have you know, what would be great ideas for companies, but they just can't seem to find that, that technical founder. And you know, as I mentioned in that startup hustle talk, you know, if you truly were a deal maker, if you were someone that could build a business and convince a customer, you're the type of person that you know, should be able to find a co-founder that can help you write code that you can build a relationship, split the business down the middle and, and build something for major success. So I don't think you need to be crazy. Um, I just think you need, you know, to have, have, have a great idea or what you believe to be a great idea. And I think you just need to be utterly convicted. And some people might call that crazy. Um, one of the uh, one of the craziest things I've done at Jared. you know there's 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 certainly been a few of them. Um, you know, I think the, one of the one of the craziest things we did was when we had our seed round of financing. Um, we uh, we were having a hard time getting, you know, the earliest wiggles of product market fit. Um, we were still running all these calls. We were, we were starting to feel a little bit burnt out, um, but we had this vision of integrating our technology with uh, Eloqua, and what that would allow us to do is feed our data into the nurturing programs. Um, of our customers and, and, uh, and it was very valuable insight for their marketing teams because up to that point video was essentially a black box. They put out on their website and they had no idea if there was an ROI. And so we decided to, to spend a good portion of the money we had in reserve sponsoring a conference in Orlando. And we took my co-founder's car, Devin, and we covered it in Vidyard stickers. I jumped in and, and literally drove straight from Toronto to Orlando which is a 20-hour drive um, we went for it. We parked the car on the lawn in front of the conference hall. We had three of us. We, we basically built a booth on a budget, um, and we just went out and talked to everybody possible and, and tried to drive business for the, for the company. And uh, Inevitably, we closed about 50K in ARR on the show floor, and uh, it felt like a crazy thing. We had, you know, we had no idea what this conference would be like. We had to you know basically take the whole company on this gigantic road trip to do it, and spend, you know, a good chunk of our cash reserves, if it didn't work, we were probably going to be out of money. But it did, and it drove volume, and that's ultimately what led to our Series A conversations. So, you know, it was a bit crazy at the time, um, but definitely felt like the right thing to do, and we were, had, had tons of conviction that it was going to be effective. Well,
0: that's, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a great story, and uh, I, I guess, you know, it should be inspirational for uh, you know the startup uh, founders that listening and um, you, you know all uh, has some i, I guess uh, you know uh, connotations uh, to um, i guess you know mark benioff uh, uh, play or you know strategic play from you know his guerrilla marketing and the type of you know sort of risks that he would uh, he would take as well. So no, it's really interesting to uh, uh, to to hear, and uh, obviously glad that it worked out. Um, now, A final question, as we're uh, running out of time there, uh, uh, Michael. But uh, so it, it, this one, I, I guess um, uh, you know, so I'm looking into uh, you know your backgrounds, and so if you think, um, uh, well, if you know, if you weren't a fireworks dealer uh, as a kid or a firecracker <laughs> dealer as a kid, you know, would you be where you are today?
1: Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think um, my my wife, you know, almost laughs because I am the type of person that always, you know, really tries to get a deal. Um, you know, and it, it's it's permeated through the Vidyard culture, um, through the sales culture, the business culture. And, and, and that certainly started uh, when I was a young lad and my grandfather was, as you, as you know, bringing me home firecrackers and I was selling them in the schoolyard. Um, you know, and the... You know the interesting thing is the the pursuit of of sales, the pursuit of you know convincing someone that they need your product or service, um, closing that deal, seeing the money come into the business or into your pocket, um, and then ultimately seeing that customer be successful, um, grow with the business, and then buy more technology from you is is incredibly addicting. And you know for me that started at a very young age. Um, and it was, you know, ultimately a way to go buy sweets at the, at the corner shops. And so, you know, I think uh, it, it certainly defined who I was. Um, I also had an early paper route and, you know, I would have to go door to door and collect money. And I remember being so uncomfortable about that process, but I had to do it if I, if I wanted, you know, my allowance and I wanted some spending money. And I was also already starting to save for university at that time. So, you know, I think um, it's it really defined who I am today. Um, but you know, almost indefinitely, there's there's a lot of people that are in similar roles that didn't have experiences selling illegal goods when they were, you know, seven eight years old. So <laughs> I think it was definitely definitely useful and, and definitely defined my personality, but not necessarily uh, a necessity in this world.
0: Yeah, well, it, you know, it's uh, I guess the sort of um, you know a uh, lemonade stand sort of you know story, but you know shows you as a uh, as an entrepreneur, you know, from the beginning and uh, an interesting CV you know from selling firecrackers illegally uh to semiconductors to biodiesel uh you know re- refinery or fuel uh, and then video so that that's a, that, that's quite an interesting path um but um but yeah you seem to be doing great things uh uh, uh today with uh, uh with videos and um yeah you know we we're, we're looking out uh for 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 what's next and you know it's hopefully you uh, you will get to product market fit if you if you think you're um, not quite there uh, yet, but um, but yeah, really excited about you guys, and um, you know, I'm sure that the the listeners and readers will be uh, looking out for you and uh, and hopefully using your products uh, uh, as well. So um, on on that note, Michael, yeah, you know, thanks for joining us, being a great guest. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, you know, we can't wait to uh, uh, put this uh, episode out uh, and uh, uh, and the transcript as well on uh, on Subscribe. So thanks very much for joining us.
1: Absolutely, it's been a pleasure. You've been a great host. Cheers. Thank you, Michael. Cheers.